Well, as we continue to survey the cross this morning, we've come to the place where Jesus is going to be at Golgotha. And Pilate, in sending him to the place of the skull, Calvary, has written a sign over his head, written in mockery, the king of the Jews, written to show that you come up as a rebel against Rome and Rome will crush you wherever you're from and whatever you've done. It is written in letters in three languages. And what Pilate wrote in scorn and anger and mockery, God turns upside down. In fact, if you were there that day and wanted to see what it looked like in those three languages, it may have looked like this, that sign above Jesus. In fact, our key verse today shows you the languages that he wrote it in. Inscription also was written over him in the letters in Greek, in Latin, and in Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews that we crushed. And these letters, written in mockery about a king that had been conquered by the Romans, turns out to be a love letter written by a king but a king that Rome didn't recognize and had never seen. As we survey, as we discover, as we hopefully this morning experience the cross together, I want you to experience it as a love letter from the king of the universe to you and I about how much he cares for us, how much grace and love and forgiveness he has for us. So we're going to take three looks at this king this king of the Jews, looking deeply at the forgiveness that comes out of him, the response to him, and ultimately what kind of authority he had in the midst of what looked like an out-of-control circumstance. Let's begin by taking a look at the forgiveness that pours out of Jesus. I mean, this king is unlike any king in history. Look at that. Look at the forgiveness of the king. See, there were two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right-hand side and one on the left. And then Jesus said, now notice the words when and then. When he's in these horrible circumstances, when things are unjust, when things are out of control, when he's been skinned alive and carried his cross and nails pounded into him, it's then we squeeze Jesus and find out what comes out of him. When he's under duress, then what bleeds out of this king is things like, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. What comes out of you when you get squeezed? Not that, I'll tell you that. Anger, frustration, resentment. But you squeeze this king, and what bleeds out of him is forgiveness. In fact, in the Greek construction here, the idea is that he keeps saying this over and over again. Oh, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. As the nails are pounded into his hands, Father, forgive them. They, they know not what they do. When he spit upon and mocked, oh, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. When... 
we don't live up to our own standards, when we betray him, when we ignore God, when we replace God, when we continue to wander like little children who do not know our left hand from our right, it's then Jesus looks at us and says, Father, forgive them. Man, they just, they don't even know what to do. And while this king is giving forth a love letter between two criminals, being mocked and spit upon with disciples that have largely abandoned him, He just keeps saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And what's the incredible response to this kind of forgiveness, to be in this kind of moment? You think people are like, oh my goodness, what a king. This is a love letter from the king of the universe. No, they're gambling by his feet. Oh my goodness, he's got a good robe. Let's divide that thing up. Let's cast lots so we don't have to divide it. They're not taking a look. At what's coming out of this king. Because they're just trying to get the robe off his back. Do you need something new to come out of you when you're under stress? The secret is to get close and hold tight to this king. So that what's coming out of him can come out of you and I. Now, when I was in Israel uh, about five or seven years ago, I got a chance to go see the location that Jesus was crucified. And I wasn't aware that there were actually two locations that are thought of to be the place Jesus was crucified. So there is the traditional Golgotha, and then there is the other Golgotha. So if you've ever seen images in movies and things, it's almost always the one on the top. The one on the top is the place that has got the big face in the uh, mountain that looks like a skull. So people take you there and say, this is it, this is Golgotha, the place of the skull. Look, it looks like a skull. In fact, there's been news in the last six months that erosion is starting to take the skull's nose away. Uh, buses there all the time. It just smells like gasoline from all the diesel buses. Um, and so this is often the place that you're taken because it feels like where Jesus was crucified. It feels much more historical there. However, I kind of lean toward the other direction, the traditional site for Golgotha, which does not feel in any way traditional. It doesn't feel in any way like you're really there. It's a gigantic church is built on top, and you wander in through gaudy, 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 gold everywhere, weird chandeliers and, and you know, candles, and, and it's like gaudy Disneyland, and you've got to stand in a line to get to the tomb of Jesus, and they take it down the hall, turn left, spin around, slap yourself, and then suddenly you're in a space like, that's right there, that spot, it's a rock in the middle of this hallway, that's where Jesus was crucified. So as much as it doesn't feel like his crucifixion site, the historic evidence probably supports, because it's outside of the walls of Jerusalem, if you look, that traditional site is outside of the walls. And in the same way in Leviticus, the scapegoat would be taken out of the temple. There's a lot of other reasons why the scapegoat and the Passover and and the evidence archaeologically that probably the Church of the Holy Sepulchre sits on the actual site of where Jesus was crucified. If you haven't been there before, let me give you a little background on it. So the location of Jesus' tomb and where he's resurrected, we're going to put here. See the little white lines there? We're going to use those to keep track of kind of where it was. In 33 AD, there was basically a big gravel pit just outside the temple, which is why I think this is probably the location. And you'll see Jesus was crucified at Golgotha, right near the garbage dump there in that location. And then about 140 feet away was this terraced garden where his body was probably placed in the tomb. So that's how close they were to each other. So that's 33 AD. Well, when the Romans take over, you know, they immediately want to erase all of the evidence of these, you know, ridiculous religions of Christianity and Judaism. And so in 135 AD, Emperor Hadrian shows up. One of the first things he does is he fills in that gravel pit. So underneath here is the tomb of Jesus, and underneath here is the site of his 
crucifixion, and that's about where the statue now stands. It's now at 135 A.D. Constantine comes to know Jesus. He becomes a follower of Jesus, and all of a sudden, you know, Rome is a Christian nation. So now we jump forward to 325 A.D. They dig down into that gravel pit. They build this massive, massive church under Constantine the Great so that you could actually come to the actual rock site of the tomb and the actual location of Golgotha and Calvary. Fast forward through history, we now jump to the 11th century, the, the crusaders come through, they want to commemorate different Christian sites that have been eradicated, they remodel the church, so it looks like that today, and then it takes one more jump in decoration to get what we know as the Church of the Holy Sepulchre today. And so again, if you go in today, it literally, there's this long, long, long Disney-esque line to get up there to go into the tomb, and um, there's a crucifixion site there, but you can also wander through the back halls to a place that they didn't actually develop it, and you can actually you know, touch actual gravel from that gravel pit. Now, it still feels like, how can the tomb be there? It should be 20 feet down. Here's a side view that might help you. So if this is what the gravel pit looked like during Jesus' time. When they built the church down, they really dug deep into the uh, foundation so that you could actually visit in the church the actual site where Jesus was buried and Jesus was crucified. So, I don't know for sure, I wouldn't be legalistic about it, but there's some good evidence to support that that is the location, even though it doesn't feel like the location. But either way, we want to look deeply at what happened at either of those locations. That the God of the universe came to you and I, and he came to pour out forgiveness for traitors and for enemies and for people who have not lived their life correctly. I think it was last week at our 10 o'clock service, I saw a couple, and they said, hey, I sorry we haven't been here a few months, we've been getting some things kind of situated, and she reminded me of her story. About a year ago, we had been meeting in the hearth room, she and her husband, and I got a chance to share the gospel with them, that there is a God who loves us not when we get our act together, but a God who loves us when we don't have our act together. I got done sharing the message of the gospel, and I said, is there any reason why you wouldn't want to receive Christ? And they both said, no, let's do that. So I led them in a uh, prayer, and they accepted Jesus into their life. And I followed up about uh, a month later as I was seeing them in church. I said, how are things going? She said, you're not going to believe it. I felt like, I don't know if you know this, but my dad and I haven't spoken in about 10 years. I said, wow, no, I didn't know that. She said, I was driving him away. She's a nurse. I was driving him away to the hospital the other day, and I felt like God, the Holy Spirit, something. I turned a turn I don't typically take and turned another turn I don't typically take and I found my car kind of sitting in front of my dad's house. Still had a little time but not much and I went up and I knocked on the door. My dad was shocked to see me. What are you doing here? I said, well, I accepted Jesus in my life and I just thought maybe we should talk. He was a Methodist or Lutheran or religious um, but part of that kind of rule-based, not really grace-based, not really knowing Jesus-based religion, um, she shared that she had found something real, and her reconciliation with her heavenly father prompted through the Holy Spirit that she should reconcile with her earthly father. They got together about a week later, and then she got baptized about six months later in our baptism pool, and she invited her father to be there to celebrate with her. It's just a powerful reminder that when you look deeply into Jesus, who he is, what he's done, it changes you. In fact, you've been on social media at all for the last two weeks. You know, one of the most powerful stories roaming through Facebook is the story of the police officer, the white female police officer that came home one night after a double shift, and when she came into her apartment, she found a perpetrator there, and she pulled out her gun and shot him. And he was a black man, 
And with all the political uproar that happens when these scenarios occur, she would quickly find out he wasn't the perpetrator in her apartment. She had wandered into the wrong apartment. She was the perpetrator who killed an innocent man. And at the trial two weeks ago, the brother of the victim looked at her and said, listen, this was a misunderstanding, and I know I'm not supposed to say this, but as a follower of Jesus, I forgive you, and I love you, and I want the best for you. It was a misunderstanding, and I even wish you didn't have to go to jail. I just hope that through this you'll come to know Jesus. He turns to the judge and says, Your Honor, could I give this woman who killed my brother a hug? He said, sure. And the scene that was so powerful is as he steps out of the area where the judge was and he gets down, the woman runs toward him, runs and embraces him. They just hold each other and just this longing for forgiveness, longing for love, longing for acceptance. And though she'll still serve her crime or time for the misunderstanding and for the you know taking of life that was you know terrible, There's this beautiful, sacred moment of that longing for forgiveness. So how do you and I get that coming out of us when we go through difficulty? How did these two people do it? It wasn't like they tried hard. That was not going to cut it. You stay close to God, this king, and you hold tight to what he's done for you. And what came out of him will come out of you. So first we look deeply at his forgiveness. Secondly, let's look at the response. It's pretty amazing the different responses that we see that are coming out of those. Because those who are there, they don't look deeply at this king as a love letter. No, the opposite. In fact, look at the responses to the king. The first one is apathy. And the people stood staring. Huh. Another person being crucified. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. What are you having for dinner tonight, honey? And I think so often as Christians, we've heard the message of the cross so often and so long, we're bored by it. We're inoculated against it. We don't look deeply at the king of the universe dying to throw his arms around us as traitor people. We just apathetically ignore God, put him in a very small corner of our life, And this staring in apathy, unmoved by God's work, unmoved by God's word, I think is often what happens to us as followers of Jesus. Are you moved by the grace of God? Are you, have you become apathetic toward it? See, it's one thing to pick on these people. It's another thing to realize I am these people. And this was a fulfillment of Psalms 22. It says, I'm going to be able to count all my bones. They don't break his bones, which the Romans typically did. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, just as Luke described, and my clothing, they cast lots. Everything that's going on here is not only a love letter, it's actually a fulfillment of a love letter that came from the book of Psalms. The second response we see is sneering. Prove it, God. Prove you are who you say you are. Even the rulers with them sneered, saying, he saved others. (laughs) Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. Which again, we can shake our fists and we can sneer and put up our lip and look down our nose at those people while they're sneering and curling their lip and looking down their nose at Jesus. But then we're guilty of the very same thing, which is the self-rivet, prove it, I know better, I wouldn't have done that if I was there kind of thing. 
Has God ever put circumstances in your life that were so frustrating, so annoying, so unjust, that you're like, prove it, God. You know, I'm open-minded, but you got to prove it. The ownership's on you to prove it to me, because I'm the judge and you're in the dock, not vice versa. That's sneering. Also a fulfillment of the book of Psalms. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, hey, I trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. <laughs> Let him deliver him since he delights in him. When you sneer at someone, when you sneer at God, you really believe that your way is better than their way, that you know better than they know, and you're incredibly impatient with them. In fact, when you see impatient people, you probably get irritated because you're impatient at their impatience and you become the very thing you're judging. It's a pretty amazing phrase used in the Hebrew, in Proverbs, Exodus, and actually in Psalms 18, that says, our God is a long-nosed God. Which is a weird thing to say. Because in our culture, a long nose is Pinocchio, right? We give things to Pinocchios if they lie on a newscast or whatever, three Pinocchios. And so the idea, a long nose for us is someone who lies. But in the Hebrew, the idea was when you see someone getting impatient or angry, their nose and their face gets red. They're just getting so mad and and they explode. So their nose gets red before they get angry. God has a long nose. It takes a long time before his nose gets red because he's so patient with us. Oh, they don't know what they're doing. There's going to be consequences. Come on, come on. They don't know what they're doing. That's the long-nosed God. The next response we see is mocking. Look at how they respond to this king. Self-righteous judgment. And the soldiers also mocked him, saying, oh, and they offered him sour wine, saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. An inscription was written over him in the letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. I told you this whole thing is a love letter written about this king while the The actual circumstances are a mocking, a sneering, a self-righteous, we know better, and you're not really God, and you're not really who you say you are. Now, the wine is a very interesting concept, because if you look at Mark chapter 15, Jesus actually offered two um, cups of wine. He refuses one, and he drinks the other. Very strange. He drinks the sour wine, but he actually refuses the wine mixed with myrrh in Mark 15. Why? Well, I don't know if this is medically true, but certainly it was tradition in those days that if you were in pain, they would give you wine mixed with myrrh, and it supposedly, or maybe scientifically, I don't know, but at least the, the urban myth of the day or the tradition of the day was that that, that myrrh mixed with the wine acted like um, anesthesia, and it would just take a little bit of the edge off the pain that you were experiencing. And so they would actually, women would come and give wine mixed with myrrh to people suffering to just take the edge off them. Jesus refuses to drink that wine. He refuses the cup that would take any of the edge off the pain he was experiencing. Yet the sour wine often, um, again, the tradition of the day was it would enhance your experience. You'd feel it even more. And Jesus actually drinks that wine. I think whatever the scientific facts are, certainly in that tradition, it was clear to the people watching that Jesus was refusing to in any way dumb down the judgment he was experiencing, dumb down the pain he was experiencing. And while they're mocking him in self-righteous judgment, he instead is absorbing all of the pain for you and for me and for everyone in eternity. 
taking, taking the full payment of God for our apathy, for our sneering attitude that we think we're better than other people, for our mocking of God and mocking of other people and our self-righteousness that comes from feeling like we know better than everybody. And you may not realize, like sometimes we get out of touch. We dress up real nice and we look real pretty and we, we, we work real carefully in what we say. And we forget that we are these people. Like, would you say that you're a mocking, judgmental person? Oh, no, 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 I'm basically a good person. And I think most of us would say that. We forget just how much we are these mocking people. In fact, I got a chance recently to be reminded just how mocking and self-righteous I am. And I tell you, the secret to it I found is that I hadn't been to King's Island in about five years. So I got a season pass because Beth has been out of commission all summer. And I started going to King's Island, which I love. And so Quinn and I are riding roller coasters and have a good time. And my goodness, am I self-righteous walking around King's Island. Wow. She's going to wear that, huh? Guess I didn't have your size. You call that parenting? Wow. If I was there, Dad. Whew. How many tattoos can you fit on your left nostril? Now, I said all this inside, of course, because I'm a pastor and I'm a Christian. But my goodness, you sit at an airport, you get bad service, and it is amazing the level of mocking self-righteousness that you find is just under the surface. You've just quieted it. You're just not saying it out loud. Mocking. And lastly, it's blasphemy. Then one of the criminals, some of the three criminals, three criminals here, Jesus being the one that's innocent, criminal, Jesus, criminal. One of the criminals' response to the king is, who hanged, blasphemed him, saying, yeah, if you're the Christ, save us and yourself. Now, why would they say blaspheme? Now, Jesus has been tried for blasphemy, which is claiming to be God and you're not. Why would they use the phrase blasphemy to describe what the criminal's doing? Because blasphemy is when you think you're God and God isn't. And so Jesus claimed to be God, and he was, but they didn't think he was, so he was guilty of blasphemy. This guy, the reason he blasphemes by doing what he does is he's like, God, Jesus, you're here to serve me. You, God, should serve me and get me out of what I deserve. So whenever you think that not we are here to serve God, but God's here to serve us, you're practicing blasphemy. You're making yourself the master and God the servant. And how often do we do that? God, you're supposed to serve me good circumstances. You're supposed to serve me an easy life. You're supposed to come through in a circumstance. Versus God, how can I serve you? How can I glorify you in these circumstances you place me in? See, the responses to the king is often not to see it as a love letter, but instead we become the very people who respond to the king with all these other ways. And how does God respond to all of that? Again, with a beautiful, gracious, kind, but authoritative love letter. Look at the authority of this king. It's no wonder that both Pilate and the Roman centurion are so struck that they've never seen a man die like this. And they've seen a lot of people die. Just struck. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God? That's the other criminal. Seeing that you are under the same condemnation, for indeed we justly, we deserve this. We receive the due reward, justly, due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. 
Look, at he recognizes his own wrongdoing. He recognizes he can't make up what he's done. He recognizes that Jesus is innocent, not guilty of what he's done. Then he, recognizing his own brokenness and God's perfection, says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Death on a cross was death, death by suffocation. You actually had to push up on that nail to breathe. And you slowly just didn't have enough energy to do it. And you collapsed through suffocation. And Jesus, when he pushes up on that nail one more time, he looks at this man and says, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This doesn't look like a prisoner being crucified. This looks like a general giving commands. This is a king in charge of his kingdom. And he says with certainty, you can know for sure, you can have confidence that you will be with me in my kingdom today. It's no wonder the centurion was struck. It's no wonder Pilate was marveled. This king, that looks like he's been defeated, is talking as if this was his plan all along. And he uses this word paradise. Now, I spent about 40 minutes explaining this almost a year ago in January. So I'm just going to give you a quick summary and I'll tell you where to get the information on it. So when prior to Jesus' death, all the Old Testament believers in God... um, believe God was their Passover, God was their forgiver, and they would go to a place Jesus calls, and the Jews called Abraham's bosom. Jesus also refers to it as paradise. So Abraham's bosom or paradise is where Jesus goes after he dies, and he escorts everyone who believed in God and his coming Messiah directly to heaven. So today, if you die, you go directly to heaven. It says in Corinthians, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But prior to that, there was kind of a a holding tank, for lack of a better term. It had two sides to it, with a gulf separated between it, according to Luke 16, where there was Sheol, or death on one side, where those who did not trust God for their forgiveness are held. And there's a place called Abraham's bosom where they were held. Now, there's there's another holding tank that we've mentioned in in our study of Luke, which is a place called the Abyss, the Bottomless Pit, and the Tartarus, and that is a holding tank for all the demonic forces that have been thrown in. And we studied that when we looked at the pigs. No one right now is in the lake of fire. Not one person. Nothing. In the book of Revelation, the Tartarus, the Bottomless Pit, will be thrown into the lake of fire, and Sheol will be thrown into the lake of fire. Now, I spent 40 minutes giving a philosophical reason debate as to why hell is actually a very needed doctrine to understand the love of God, uh, his role as justice, and I spent 40 minutes developing that and explaining this entire passage, to which you're like, I wasn't here, I'd like to know more about that. So let me show you how you can use uh, either our website or um, our app. We're, we're, it's not available yet, but I got a beta version of it. I thought I'd show you just how cool this is, of uh, what you're going to be able to do. So this is the beta version of our app that's going to be coming here in the next uh, few weeks and months. And so you'll be able to pull up our app and you look at our current message series with the audio from the past and the video that's coming, past messages, or you can even click this title called Book by Book. We have summarized all of the teaching for the last 10 years by Book of the Bible. And so we got data entry going on. I'm actually coding with my administrative assistant uh, keywords for all the messages for the last 10 years because we feel like it's going to be such an important tool. So you say, hey, I really want to know, has... has Horizon never spoken on Genesis. Oh yeah, there's 42 messages in Genesis. And sure enough, it will pull up all of the images that we did. If you remember, if you're here for Code of Many Colors, I did a one-man drama, I played Joseph, that's in there. Um, and it's every message we did on those passages. If you go back a couple years before that, 2013, we did a message all in the life of Abraham called The Great Unknown. 
you want to go way back to uh, 2008, for those of you with us at CCD, we did a verse-by-verse study of Genesis chapter 1 through 10, explaining all the things going on in the first couple chapters. You might go back and say, oh, well, you know, I really want to know, is there anything going on in the book of Kings? Oh, 19 um, messages from the book of Kings take you back to our different series. There's a whole series we did on depression called Playing with Fire, Man Up, etc., So this is going to be a great tool, I think, for you for your own personal spiritual time as you're studying through the Bible. And we're going to continue to add series until we have as many as we can to not all of them for the last 16 years. However, if you're looking for a specific topic, you can actually go to Messages. If you click on Past Messages, in the top right corner you'll see a little um, toolbar. So you can say, I only want to hear messages by Doug Daly. That guy could preach, Chad can't. So you can click on speaker, or I only want Drew messages, um, or you can search by keyword. So you say, for example, Chad, his message talked about paradise. Um, where is that message that he talked about paradise? And you type in paradise, and it will tell you that there are two times that we address that. We did a series called End Quotes at the Exploring Service, where we addressed the end quotes Jesus said when he died for Lent two years ago, and so I addressed it there. Or you can see here in Luke, Lost and Found, that's the 40-minute message I did on hell and paradise and Abraham's bosom back, it looks like, in January 4th of this year. So again, I hope this would be a great tool for you to study, for you to grow, and for you to use that tool. And you'll be able to then press a button, forward that message directly to somebody. Please don't send the hell message to somebody, but uh, a forgiveness message to somebody, a a depression message to somebody, a, you know, how to have self-awareness message. So all these are coming in the tools, and we hope this is going to be helpful. And you can do most of that stuff right now, um, not the book by book yet, on our website as we move everybody over to the app here in the next coming months. So very, very exciting. Uh, Some of the tools are going to be available for spiritual growth. So once we take these different looks... We look at the authority coming out of this king. We look at the forgiveness coming out of the king. We look at the responses to the king. What is our response to this message? I think we need to live this kingdom-centered prayer of the prisoner. What if you and I begin to pray and live like we're praying every day, this prisoner's kingdom-centered prayer? Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. See, you might be religious, I grew up Catholic, I grew up Lutheran, I grew up Protestant, I grew up whatever. But you don't know the king. Can you think of a time in your life that you remember, that you know, that you've ever said, remember me when you come into your kingdom? Do you have the absolute confidence that when you die and if you die, you know for sure you will be with me in paradise? If you don't have that confidence, then you're still operating in religion and the murkiness of it. I hope I get to heaven. Maybe I've done enough. So I hope I'm a good enough person. That's all religious nonsense. That is not the gospel. The gospel is the confidence that I can know I will be with him in heaven because of what he did for me, not what I did for him. And maybe today, maybe as you leave today, maybe right now as I'm talking, you just want to say to God in your heart, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. They're not magic words. It's an expression of your heart. And that puts you into the kingdom and Jesus becomes your king. Just by praying that simple prayer. Worked for the criminal. can work for you. But more than that, if you've prayed that prayer years ago, are you praying it every day that I want to come into your kingdom? Until I get there, my job is to represent your kingdom here, to be a part of the kingdom here, to, to manifest that kind of forgiveness wherever I go. I'm a representative of his kingdom right here and right now in my life. I had a phone call this week with a guy who told me a powerful story 
of how he has seen the kingdom of God spread in his life. He told me it was about a year he had an affair. And he had a very tumultuous relationship with his father. He really got out of alignment. He grew up religious. But that didn't stop him from having a year-long affair. It came out. Destroyed his reputation. And with that, he and his wife started having some very tough conversations. And he said, my wife is a hero of this story. The fact that she was willing to be patient with me, willing to let God break me, willing to let me repent. I said, well, how did she do it? He said, oh, I'll tell you how she did it. She had a Bible, still does, sitting at the side of our bed that she reads every day. And every night she's got a cross she holds in her hand. She holds tight and she keeps it close, reminding her of God's grace for her, God's patience with her. And if she had not done that, our marriage wouldn't have survived. During that time, God broke me of my arrogance. I got into a Bible study for the first time in my life. I was religious. I had a religious label, but I was never in the Bible, known Jesus. And I, I began to devour the Bible, and God began to transform me. I began to see the pain I'd caused other people. I began to see the brokenness in myself. And eventually, I prayed a prayer like that, and I came to know Jesus. And more than that, God prompted me that I need to reconcile with my father. And we had a very, very angry relationship and didn't talk, even though we worked together for years. But now my dad, the last couple of years of his life, was in kind of the equivalent of hospice. It wasn't quite hospice, but kind of like hospice. He could blink, he could smile, but he couldn't talk much. And I went and sat by his bedside for two years, so angry, so mad. And I began to tell my father I forgave him. We began to talk about stuff. It was amazing because for the first time in our relationship, Dad couldn't cut me off, so he had to listen to me. But Dad would smile. And Dad received my apology, and I received his. My sisters came in, and we led my father to Christ, told him about Jesus. As we did that, my sister, who's kind of a dot the I's, cross the T's kind of person, put a paper in front of him and said, Dad, if you really believe this, if you really accept this, I want you to sign on this line that you have said the gospel prayer. And he did. I thought, you know, of all the things I've seen at the end of someone's life where people are fighting over money and who signed what in the will and who gets what, I thought, no, this is something worth signing. To know, Dad, we want to see you again. And how did his wife do it? And then how did he do it with his dad after all those years of pain? He didn't try hard. You don't try hard to produce this kind of forgiveness. You stay close to the king. And you hold on tight to his promises, what he did for you. After 10 years of jet skiing, this year uh, I decided to sell my jet skis and switch to a boat, which I've had most of my life uh, prior to that. So I got a boat. So Mr. Quinn and I went out before this weather turned this week, and uh, my wife's on the boat and everybody else on the boat, and we, we decided to, to get up on skis together. I've done it a couple times. I'm not behind a boat. So Quinn's sitting in front of me. And I'm like, all right, buddy. I'm trying to explain to him. My son has autism, if you don't know, and blindness and a few other things. And I'm like, okay, buddy, you hold on. Stand on my feet and and, and stay close to Dad. So he's on my chest looking this way. We're in the water. And and I got my arms around him and arms around him. And he's got his arm kind of dangling around. And his feet are going, oh, no, put your feet on top of my feet. All right, ready? Go. Water splashing everywhere. Boom, we pop up. And we're skiing for about 10 minutes together. Just having a great time. And come on, put your foot back down, buddy. Stay tight, hold on, stay close. And he suddenly realized how much fun this is, and he lets go of the rope because I got my arms around him, and he's flapping along, just having a great time. And he thinks he's skiing. In one sense, he is. But I'm the one that's really skiing. All he's doing is two things staying close and holding on tight. 
And if you want to know purpose in the kingdom of God, if you want this kind of forgiveness to come out of you in your life, that's what you do. You stay close and you hold on tight. Stay close to the king. Hold tight to the kingdom. And the God of the kingdom, his communicable attributes will begin to flow through you as you stay close to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the opportunity we've had today to survey the wonderful cross and what you've done for us. God, may may we just examine our own hearts, our own apathy, our own sneering, self-righteous attitudes, our own belief that you're here to serve us, and instead see the love letter that you did for us on Calvary. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, we'll see you all next week. There is a, a little announcement on the screen that you can read if you're interested in that as well. See you next week.